0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode 412. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast. I am your host today, Jacob Paulson. I am joined today by my co-host, humble, insignificant man, Riley Bowman.
1: So humble. Thanks for being
0: here. Hey, you know,
1: thanks for having me on the podcast today. Uh, I- I'm really honored to be on the show with you.
0: Yeah, I think you're going to have a good time with this whole podcast concept. Uh, Rather, in case you were unaware, we're live right now on YouTube and Facebook as well. So, those of us who are joining us live, uh, we'll be watching for your comments and have a grand old time as we record today's episode.
1: Absolutely.
0: Today, our topic when can you shoot someone? In the most basic and clear terms we can make it, we're going to go through that. But first, message from some of our sponsors. We have two sponsors today. The first one is the Law of Self Defense book, and currently in it's third edition by Andrew Branca. This book is effectively the Bible on self defense law in America. And it's currently only available in hardcover. The soft cover has been discontinued. So you can go and check that out at concealedcare.com forward slash losd for law of self defense. And uh, it's available on Kindle for like ten bucks. So if you're a really cheap person and you want to get a really fantastic education in self defense law for ten bucks, you can find it on uh, Amazon for your Kindle. Today's episode is also brought to you by American Gun Law, which is a video-based online course that we launched back in. I don't remember what year. Is that 2016?
1: Yeah. I think
0: it was 2016. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, those of you longtime listeners have heard about American gun law. And this is a video based course. It's a little over three hours long. And it's just everything gun law and self defense law it breaks a lot of the myths. And it's a really fantastic uh, product. We don't promote it much anymore because, I guess, to Riley and I, it just feels. Um, you know old but it's certainly not outdated. All the content in there is, is fantastic and good and we would encourage you to go check that out and you can learn more at concealcary.com forward slash AGL for American gun law. Alright, Riley, so into our topic today. Now I I wrote an article and it was published on our website at ConcealCurry.com just yesterday, April 30th, titled When Can You Shoot Someone? And my intent here was to just put this in as plain English as possible. You know, we know there's a lot of new gun owners out there, and even for the most experienced concealed carriers, there's there's a lot of misconceptions and myths. And I'll add just complexity, uh, where perhaps there should be some simplicity. And so my intent and, and hope with today's episode is that we can just kind of go through this in a way that makes it as clean and simple as possible. Does that sound like a plan?
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, you're the host, so you're in charge. Unless right. anyone starts wondering what's up, uh, I was planning on not being on the show today, and uh, it was going to be Jacob and Matthew. And unfortunately, Matthew had something come up suddenly, so I had to scramble and get ready. So <laughs> you're but, you're, yeah, you're I,
0: substituting for Matthew.
1: I know. I I, I am the pitch pinch hitter right now.
0: Ooh, I like the baseball analogy. Nice one. All right. <laughs> well, so I wish baseball
1: what, was going right now. Oh, sorry. Uh, I
0: do wish baseball was going Yeah, right now. That would be nice. Or that I, I, I could play baseball without my neighbors looking at me dirty. Like, why are you out I,
1: here? I, I've heard rumors they're going to try to get it going with like some kind of abbreviated season where the teams do a lot less traveling and like they even like do some temporary rearrangements of the divisions.
0: Hmm.
1: Could be really interesting.
0: Well, 160 games a year is a lot of games, so you could abbreviate that and still have a lot of games. Yep. Okay, so here's where we're going to kick this off. We're going to start by breaking one of the largest misconceptions of self-defense law, of, of when can you shoot one? And that misconception, that myth, is the idea that these laws vary a lot from state to state. So I think this is really important. I think that there's a sense and, and I admit I'm guilty or I was guilty of this at one time of thinking, well, you know, for this state it's X, Y, and Z, but I, I don't know about any other state. It's probably very different. And it, it took a lot of research and study, uh, and, and, obviously somebody else doing a lot of the heavy lifting for me to really understand that it's not that different from state to state.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, the, the gun law, the carrying of a gun, the where, the how, the what, that is very different from state to state. I mean, we see similar trends in a lot of states, uh, but but we have to really look carefully at the statutes for every state, wherever we are, because even the slightest nuance or, or tweak in some verbiage can you know, be a difference maker between going to jail or not going to jail uh, when you're carrying your gun out and about. But the use of the gun... That is certainly there are nuances, but it's a lot more similar from state to state.
0: Correct. And so, I think that's that's the first key is that you know no matter where you are, if you're listening to this, you may have been led to believe that your state had very unique self defense laws, or that it varies so much when you cross state lines. And message number one of today's episode is that's really probably not the case. Um, all the self defense law is ancient is the key. Like it, it really mm-hmm. all derives from English common law, and even English common law derives from from uh, you know, much older law than that. Stuff so, way older. Right, yeah. The, the idea that a person should have the right to defend themselves is not new. It's not you know, because of guns or because of concealed carry or anything else American. Um, it's it's a very ancient concept that we have a right of self-defense. And so the laws that govern when and how you can defend yourself uh, have been around for a very long time, and they're pretty dang universal. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And so that's that's the first thing to really kind of understand – Uh, We're going to kind of go through and just discuss self defense law in the context or the paradigm of the five elements of self defense. And this uh, originally was introduced to me by Andrew Branca. Andrew Branca is a person who's been practicing self defense law for, you know, he's been practicing law as an attorney for over 30 years and really with a focus on nothing but self-defense law for, for more than a decade. And he's really made an extensive study of all the different self-defense laws, justifiable force laws, or whatever you want to call them, across all 50 states. And he really kind of introduced this idea that, you know, regardless of what state you're in, there's there's basically four core elements of self-defense and maybe a fifth one. You know, some states have this fifth one. But for the most part, there's really you – know, he, he always refers to it as five. In my mind, I think, well, there's really four that are universal – And then you have a fifth one that applies in less than half of the states. And so I think our next step here today is to kind of go through these five elements of self-defense, explain what they are, how they work uh, in the most basic, simple way possible so that someone can understand when they can shoot someone. And I I think the, the introduction to that is understanding that uh, all of these requirements must be in place in order for you to be justified in other words it's not one of the five or two of the five or half you know it's 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 all of them mm-hmm.
1: that, that's right uh, you gotta have all those elements you got to meet all those elements of self-defense to have a presumption of 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 innocence essentially or of justification i mean realize that when we talk about self-defense law, the law says killing somebody is bad, right? But there's this exception, right? It's a it's a, an affirmative defense that you have to make when you use deadly force. You're saying, "Yeah, I did kill that dude, but I was justified in doing so, and here's how." And then you got to go through these various uh, elements of the law to to show that.
0: Yeah, good point, right? Because it's very binary. Inherently, by by claiming self-defense, by saying, "Hey, I'm 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 saying I did this in in defense of myself or others," you're also inherently admitting to have done it to begin with, right? You're saying, "Yes, yep. I did shoot this person. Uh, yes, I did stab this person. Yes, I did punch this person in the face. Whatever it might have been." And so you're inherently admitting to the the act of of force. You're just trying to justify it, and if and if your justification falls through, if you end up not uh, being able to claim self-defense, if you're if that claim of self-defense does not pan out for you, what you're left with is just an admission of guilt of having done the the act, uh, which is problematic. So yeah, it's you know as we go through these elements, you need to keep in mind that that all of the required elements must be in place. They all must be true. Uh, they you know beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Uh, or they must—I yeah. should say—they should be—they di- have—they all have to be disproven. Uh, no, I now I'm, yeah, I'm getting my words twisted. At well, least, uh, as the as the prosecutor, at least one of them has yep. to be uh, shown as as being not true beyond reasonable doubt, right? So at least, I mean, to, the prosecutor just has to find one of these to 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 make your claim of self-defense not valid.
1: Hey, when I'm in the drive, when I'm not in the driver's seat, it's really hard to bite my tongue here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm the host, I'm just- Riley.
1: I'm just teasing. Uh, so, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, right from the very first element of self-defense, say innocence. Like, I mean, you, you, everything else may fall into line. Like, your use of force may have been reasonable, in you know, in some eyes, uh, the proportionality may have been you know acceptable, but you picked the fight, you started the fight, you initiated that contact, that that confrontation, that conflict. Well, innocence poof, out the window. So, regardless of everything else, y- you're not the innocent party. And in some, in many states, like Colorado, for instance, there's a specific exclusion uh, on that point. That if you are the initial aggressor, poof, you're toast.
0: Mm-hmm. So you you you've taken us to the first element. So let's get right into it. Again, we yeah, yeah, now you're what I do. There, there are Finding four segways four core elements and then a fifth one that applies some you know in some states so let's the first of the four core uh, as i call it is is uh, is innocence um, so innocence you, you said it out already right you in order for this one to be true you must be the innocent party in the encounter you can't start the fight if you start uh-huh. the fight or if you provoked the attack then you don't have the legal right to self defense that's that's number 1 yep oh, I don't know that hold takes on much more.
1: pause pause uh we should probably say should have said neither jacob nor i are attorneys at law we do not practice law we cannot advise you in legal matters but we are students of the law and have studied these issues quite extensively and frequently cover these issues you in, in articles and podcasts on our site and, uh, you know, we're fortunate that we have a close connection with uh, Andrew Branca. And, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity of, of learning and worshipping at his feet many a times.
0: Yeah. And I've been through his instructor program, uh, which is a mm-hmm. extensive uh, eight-plus-hour program designed to qualify a person to be able to speak authoritatively on this topic yeah, uh, yeah. You know, that doesn't make. I'm me still working expert. on it. Yeah, and it does. It doesn't make me an attorney either. It simply means that you know I'm I'm more studied than the average Joe, I guess. Uh, yeah, for whatever that's worth. I don't. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Anyway. All right. Yeah. Just Fair. thought we should uh, get that off. Yeah. Off There's a disclaimer the at the end
0: of the episode, but probably good to include it now, <laughs> so that uh, it is reasonable to presume that we're not trying to provide legal advice. Number two. So the first one was innocence. I'm um, the innocent party. I didn't start the fight.
1: Right. Number two. Well, do, do, do you mind if I actually throw out a quick example
0: you are of loud. something about that? Sure.
1: Uh, and the reason I bring this up, I think it's kind of relevant. There was a post in a Facebook group that you and I are members of, and somebody talked about an incident they had. It was a driving incident where somebody ran through a stop sign and they kind of did the, the natural thing. Like, you're like, ah, you ran through that stop sign. Like, how dare you? Or you could have hit and killed me. And so they honked their horn. And uh, and then like yelled out the window, WTF, you know, probably with a bird uh, uh, insignia as well attached to their hand, and uh, you know, and, and then that actually turned into where the driver of the vehicle that ran the stop sign started chasing them. So, now I'm not I'm not making any assumptions here about like I'm not necessarily even saying that honking your horn you know constitutes starting a fight, but I'm just mentioning it as an example. And how sometimes things can start very, almost even innocently. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of deadly fights start with this whole idea of "I must defend my honor," and that is one of the most dangerous things I think for self, uh, for law-abiding, self-defense-minded individuals is to go. I'm angry. You, you have you have uh, taken away or trampled upon my honor. I must defend my honor. And so you say some words, maybe some pushes and shoves, maybe some punches, and next thing you know, you're pulling your gun out and shooting somebody. And depending on how that is viewed, depending on exactly what transpired, depending on what witnesses say, depending on what crappy, grainy surveillance video you have, you might not necessarily be judged as being the innocent party.
0: Yeah, and, 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 you know, Probably beyond the scope of this this episode today, but a person can also regain innocence. You know, you might be the initial aggressor, but then your confrontation can change in a way that you become the new innocent party and the other person becomes the aggressor. And so it it, it can be dynamic and complicated. Uh, The example I always give is, you know, imagine I'm sitting at the bar, I'm watching the game and someone insults my team. And so I shove them off of their bar stool, they hit the ground, they pull out a boot knife and they start to walk toward me, you know. Uh, they they may be the first one to pull out a weapon, but I I definitely in the initial aggressor, right? So so it, sometimes it may not be as black and white as it sounds. And our intent today is to try and break it down in the most simplistic way possible, so it's memorable. Uh, but under you know a, a deeper education and research is is necessary to understand the nuances and how the devil is in the details sometimes.
1: Yep. The the only way to ensure we don't. Get ourselves like because there can be a lot of nuanced gray area type stuff with what those kind of situations like even what you just described, and the only way to guarantee that you don't get in trouble with a situation like that is to avoid conflict in the first place at all costs, and to not do stupid things with stupid people in stupid places at stupid times.
0: Yeah, and and sometimes that that that's not about you know you being proactively dumb. It's about you managing your impulses. Yeah. Yep. All right, so number one was innocence. Here we go. Number two, proportionality. So proportionality is the sense that your use of defensive force must be proportional to the threat. So if you're defending against a threat of low physical harm, i.e. someone's going to slap you in the face, um, that, 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 that slap is not likely to cause serious injury or death, and therefore you do not have the legal right to use deadly force in defense of that threat. You may legally only use deadly force, such as a gun, to defend against a threat of serious bodily injury or death.
1: Yep. Uh, I, yeah. I, I take your pause, meaning you want me to say something yeah. intelligent. <laughs> well,
0: I didn't know if you had a comment.
1: <laughs> I'm happy to just sit back and listen, you know. Uh, yeah, so uh, proportionality. I mean... Here's the thing. So our use of force must be proportional to to the circumstances. Uh to I mean, for instance, the, the, the most black and white way to describe this is bad guy, you know, approaches you with gun, like say a typical on the street armed robbery. Well, there there's there's nothing more proportional than you pulling out your gun. It, you know assuming you choose to engage assuming you make the decision that that's the best thing to do the right thing to do uh, where but you know you talked about a slap or, or you know this thing or that thing uh, you know it, it can get a little bit more you know nuanced uh, one thing though to recognize too though is where the stakes are already disproportional or the the participants are already disproportional Uh it's hard, you know, for for me to speak specifically and make assumptions about other people and the situation that they might be in or find themselves in based on their current uh, health status, their size, their weight, whatever that is. Uh, but I mean, just imagine that you have uh, someone that's in a wheelchair, someone that is uh, not. You know, the most physically capable that has other physical ailments or disabilities. uh, Maybe it's a size disparity where your attacker is, is a much more, you know, very obviously larger or younger or stronger or more skilled uh, individual that's threatening you. And you are, you know, if the situation already starts out disproportional, then that, that, that can bode well in your favor as to uh, potentially using deadly force.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it'd be easy to ask, well, what if I'm smaller, older, pregnant on blood thinners, have a pacemaker, or I'm otherwise more vulnerable? Um, it, it's, it's important to understand that the law never lists weapons and says that you can't use a gun against a punch or a knife smaller than three inches, right? Like that would be arbitrary and very limiting. What the law says is you can use proportionate force. So it, it's not about the tool being used, uh, you know, the fist, the knife, the gun, the whatever. It's about the like, The likely in, in the likely or intended result. So if the likely or intended result is serious bodily injury or death, then you're justified in using deadly force. And it doesn't matter if the attackers uh, perceives that you're on blood thinners or perceives that you have a pacemaker or perceives that you are on blood thinners. Like what matters is that you understand that that's the likely, uh, you know, that's likely out that's the likely outcome or that's the the threat being made uh and so your response has to be proportionate with the threat not necessarily the tool and that's that's mm-hmm. kind of you know the way i i'd like to think of it uh, that's
1: right you know but then you're the one and that's the thing with an affirmative defense like you know this type of situation where you've got to be ready to show and demonstrate that hey this is why you know, my decision to go to the gun, that's why this is proportional because of X, Y, Z factors. Uh, here's what I can tell you. I mean, just what I know about myself is a simple physical altercation is likely not to be justification for me to go to my gun because I'm a six foot three, 230 pound, relatively strong and yeah, somewhat trained individual as far as, you know, I've had some some hand-to-hand training. So, uh what what's proportional for me is not what's proportional for jacob in the same circumstances is not what's proportional for somebody else uh that's a again a, there's an opportunity for a lot of nuance to come into play with that kind of uh uh you know with, with this particular element of self defense uh, it's going to be very dependent on the person and you got to be able to show and prove why uh it works for you
0: mm-hmm and it's about what you can reasonably assume at the time too. So, sure. you know, if I see Chuck Norris coming, I know Chuck Norris is a very skilled individual, albeit at this point very old. But uh, you know, if I if I, I may not know that my attacker has really advanced fighting skills or you know training, you know, if if it's just some random stranger on the street. So it's it's also about what you can reasonably reasonably presume is the threat to you. Uh, that's the way that works. All right. Next, imminence. Imminence is a really important one. We definitely see a fair share of instances where people get imminence wrong, where this is the one that really screws people up. Imminence, simply put, means that you may only defend against a threat that is immediate. You may not defend against a past threat that is no longer active or against a potential future threat that's not immediate. And by immediate, we mean like now, (laughs) not 10 minutes from now. We mean like now, now. So, Where this most often where we see this come into play as, as, uh, as a mistake that people make is we see people who want to defend against a past threat. This person just finished punching me, assaulting me, um, doing whatever horrible thing to me or a loved one or to someone on the street. And now they're in escape mode. They're in retreat mode or the clearly the threat has been eliminated. And I, I, I begin or I continue to use deadly force against this no longer existing threat against this past threat. And that's where we see a lot of people get in trouble on this idea of imminence. Yes. It, it just means right
1: now, like <laughs> the threat is now, uh, there's been some interesting cases, uh, including ones we've covered on the podcast before where situations like where, uh, I think I, I seem to remember one where a neighbor was, you know, there was, there was a, a big conflict between two neighbors, uh, like really, really, really nasty stuff being said between them. And the one I think uh, said something over the fence, like I'm going to kill you, or they called him on the phone and said something to that effect. But it was, it was, it was a threat for sure. And probably an unlawful threat without a doubt because of the nature of the language that was used. This individual took it as, I'm going to go into my gun or into my house now, grab my gun and then he went over and shot their neighbor. Uh guess what? That's not how it's that's not how it works. Yeah, okay, he issued a threat, but did he back it up with anything? You, you were standing right there. Maybe maybe this was a conversation over the fence like did he pull out a weapon? Did he do this? Did he do that? No, he just said he's going to kill me, so I went and grabbed my gun and I you know, I believed it because of the look in his eye, you know. Like that, that doesn't that doesn't cut, you know, uh muster or whatever you say.
0: Yeah, and, and the look in the eye may be a viable argument if the person is like advancing toward you in that moment, right? Like I don't know,
1: but, right? But clearly that's, in that's this imminent. case,
0: it was a it was a a future threat. Ah, uh, one of these days, i mean, whatever, you know, kind of thing. And and as so it wasn't, it wasn't imminent. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So can't defend against future threats. Can't defend against past, no longer existing or inactive threats. It has to be a now threat. Mm-hmm. Can but, I just?
1: back that up with one other example that kind of goes the other way There's a situation uh, here in colorado uh where uh, it was actually a, a father and his son that I had uh right. they got they got very intoxicated uh and uh really nasty things were said between them and not maybe not necessarily a threat i think maybe the father did say something like that but the son they're like yeah okay um, the dad went over to his house because they lived nearby to each other. Gra- grabbed his gun or his weapon, came over, came back over. Um, the son had armed himself and uh, had to shoot his dad through the through the door. You know, so like, you know, that, that kind of just as an example, a weird example of somebody that did say something and then they did back it up. But the son didn't go looking for the trouble. He didn't go out there to confront him. He didn't do anything like that. He stayed, you know, in his in his domicile. You know, in his home, in his residence. Uh, and he defended himself appropriately there. He didn't take proactive action is I guess what I'm trying to say. So kind of two contrasting but somewhat similar stories.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, number four. This is the last of our of what I'm calling the four core things because they're universally true in all 50 states. And that is reasonableness. Reasonableness, this, this element essentially means that what you perceive, what you think, and what you do – must be reasonable based on what a reasonable person of your circumstances would have thought, felt, or believed, as it relates to each of the elements of self-defense. So, for example, uh, here's here's the one I, I think of often. I'm, I'm you know walking down the street. Dude jumps out, you know, in a hoodie, has his has his hand in the little hooded sweatshirt pocket. It says he's got a gun. I have a gun, and you know it says. He wants my money, so I, I give him my wallet or whatever, and then he says, "You know, I'm going to shoot you." And he takes a step forward, so I so I pop him right. I, I draw and I fire and, and I shoot him, and it turns out that he had no gun; it was a finger, you know, that he was he was pointing. So what what matters here, you know, the, the question of proportionality might come up. Well, he didn't have a gun, but Jacob used a gun. Was that proportional? Well, what matters is if my perception of proportionality, right, was reasonable. Would a person, an average, normal, reasonable person? like a jury of my peers would, had they been in my situation and seen what I saw and knew what I knew, would they have perceived that the use of force was proportional? Would they have thought in that circumstance that he had a gun and therefore, you know, my use of gun, my use of my gun was appropriate and proportional. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's this idea that, you know, imminence and proportionality and innocence, they, they don't have to be factually accurate. What matters is that my perception of them, what I saw and what I perceived, and then what I did was reasonable based on the circumstance uh, well, as it relates to those other three elements.
1: It's, it's not even just that you that what you perceive is that way and and, and works within that context of reasonableness. Because keep in mind, like who is this relevant to? What is this reasonableness relevant to? It is potentially a grand jury looking to indict you or a judge, you know, where, cause that's where this typically is going to take place, this type of case, or could be in an actual full blown trial, right? Uh, so reasonableness, remember, everybody's uh, uh, guilt or innocent until proven, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty. That's where the jury sitting there hearing all the facts of the case, and believe me, Prosecutors can be incredibly persuasive. Uh, it comes down to: Does it, is a Jerry gonna b- it buy your story? Are they gonna believe you and see it the same way, considering all the other facts of the case as presented to them? Mm-hmm. Looking yeah, at the- you know, some some of their factors. Uh, can be a little bit easier to like some of the other facts of the case could be a little bit easier to show. Uh, Well, you know, we can show how this is the innocent party because of this, you know, right here, we can show this because of that. We can show this, you know, but a lot of times if you look at uh, convictions, particularly controversial convictions or non-convictions, a lot of times it comes down to a single piece of evidence and how that is presented either by the prosecution Or the defense, and that oftentimes becomes the deciding factor as a jury's going, reasonable doubt, yes or no. So your reason, the reasonableness element. I mean, what you you might believe that you are reasonable, but don't forget you got to convince potentially a jury of twelve of your peers to also think that the same way, and that's not always as easy uh, as people would like it to like to believe.
0: I'm glad you said that, right? Because what what is reasonable is not. It doesn't matter what we think is reasonable. It's about what you know. Should it get that far, the jury of our peers think is reasonable. That's going to be the final standard. Uh, before that, you know, if it gets that far, is going to determine whether or not the potentially the uh, the officer or the investigator or and then the district attorney and then the prosecutor. Now, all these other people might have to think it's reasonable or not reasonable. But eventually, ultimately, it's going to come down to that jury of the peers. That's that's the that's the premise, right? That's the theory of the system.
1: All all I got to do sometimes is read comments on various gun or self-defense related uh, Facebook posts for me to lose complete faith in humanity as to what uh, normal Joes and Janes out there carrying guns think is reasonable. And sometimes it's rather scary.
0: (laughs) Yes, indeed.
1: And that's why we do things like this podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> all right, so let's get to the fifth element. And, and up till now, I have used, and I, am disclaiming it because, because I've never heard Andrew call, you know, separate these five elements and refer to the first four as the core elements. And, and then the, this fifth element, but that's, that's just Jacob brain and how I think about it. Cause these, the, the four elements we've discussed so far, innocence, proportionality, imminence, and reasonableness, those four are universal uh, across all 50 states. This fifth one, avoidance, is not universal. This one is kind of, you know, you you have or don't have this requirement, this element in your state. It's also arguably the most confusing of them because this is where uh, the whole stand your ground, castle doctrine, and duty to retreat concepts live. All three of those uh, relatively often cited legal doctrines all of them only have anything to do with this fifth element of avoidance. And so this this is the one that I think often gets people confused even though it's relatively straightforward. So let's talk about this fifth element. So the fifth element, the fifth requirement of avoidance basically states that you must make any reasonable attempt to safely retreat from the threat before using force in defense of that threat. So if safely able to retreat from the threat, one must retreat before use of force is justified. That's the concept of avoidance. Now, as of the recording of this episode, there are 37 states where this element is not applicable, where there is no avoidance, there is no duty to retreat, no use of language, right, in in those 37 Mm -hmm. states. Only in the remaining 13 states is the avoidance element required. Uh, meaning that there are 13 states that have a duty to retreat. So that terminology that we often heard this idea of duty to retreat refers to the requirement of avoidance, as named uh, or or you know, popularized by Andrew Branca. So hopefully that's clear. Now the what's the opposite? What, what how would we re, you know the, we refer to the 37 states that have no element of avoidance, no duty to retreat? Those are stand-your-ground states. So stand-your-ground, often a a confusing concept or term, is simply put the absence of a duty to retreat. That's all it means. So we have 37 states that are stand-your-ground states and 13 that are duty-to-retreat states as of this recording.
1: That's right. It's a little bit less than 75% of states in the United States that uh, uh, have the stand-your-ground type you know, application of the law in this regard, uh, the the removal of that uh, requirement of avoidance in a situation. Uh, I don't remember as well on the top of my head, Jacob might, it might be helpful to our listeners to just list really quickly what those states are. He's pulling it up. It's it's hard to, you know, keep all that straight. Um, But, uh, you know, it's exactly right. And there's also avoidance that applies uh, within your home. And virtually all the states... Uh, there's you know, and then that's what we call the castle doctrine. Castle doctrine is blown up just like stand your ground is blown up into this huge, like, legal concept that it somehow grants special powers and abilities to use deadly force in certain situations. And it's not like that at all. Castle doctrine removes the avoidance element when a situation is taking place inside your dwelling, and stand your ground removes the element of avoidance. Outside of a dwelling, just literally as simple as that.
0: Well, well really, a stand your ground state. So the thirty-seven stand your ground states remove the element of avoidance altogether, including the home. Right? That would be the easiest way to think of that.
1: Well, yeah, so, it's just so presumed. Yeah, so yes. Yeah. The, the, if it's not specifically mentioned.
0: Right. The the <clears throat> the castle doctrine concept only is relevant in the remaining thirteen states. Sure. Yeah. That's that's
1: that's fair. Yeah.
0: Right. So, So in the 13 states that have a duty to retreat, I will name them here in a moment, in those 13 states, as it were, all of them have castle doctrine. So what that effectively mm-hmm. means is there is no place in this country where one has the required element of avoidance slash duty to retreat inside the home. There's, 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 there's no state where that's true. Uh, the, the, the requirement of avoidance only exists in 13 states, and even in those states, only outside the home. Uh, and so that's you know all three of these terms: duty to retreat, stand your ground, and castle doctrine. They all simply are that. It's our way of labeling uh, whether or not you have a duty to retreat. And castle doctrine specifically referring to the home, and then and the other two kind of more generically speaking. Here are the 13 the, the, states that oh, have a duty ahead. to retreat: Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Maine, Maryland. Minnesota, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, North Dakota, Ohio, Rhode Island.
1: Yeah. So, some of those are very surprising and some not so much, right?
0: Yeah. yeah Wyoming's yeah. a weird hey. one too. Wyoming could go either way. It's kind of a case by case thing. They don't really well, have a very well-established precedent for standing ground, but it is Wyoming.
1: Colorado kind of is that way, too. I mean, Colorado does not have a true stand-your-ground statute. Uh, The way Colorado uh, operates uh, currently, you know, under, like, I guess the current precedent is basically like a stand-your-ground state. But there are some interesting nuanced uh, phrases in the law that, you know, it'd be interesting to see if anything like that is Officially taken up and and really challenged or clarified, sure. But for that, the most that's true part, of several you know,
0: of those thirty seven states. Like California is a good example. Right. California has no stand your ground statute um, that the spec you know specifically says you have no duty to retreat. But it's been a court precedent since eighteen something in in <laughs> California, right? So it, it is a. We, we label it as a stand-your-ground state that has no duty to retreat, uh, despite it not really having a statute to that effect. It does have very significant and strong and long-standing court precedent. And so yeah. it falls into that bucket uh, as it relates to this conversation.
1: Uh, duty to retreat in and of itself is such a subjective thing. like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and number one, that's why I believe that all states should be stand-your-ground states because I think it is just unfair to expect an innocent party to have to make the judgment call in a situation filled with stress of, oh, do I need to, is this a situation where it's appropriate for me to go ahead and retreat? Do I have to retreat? Like, that is such an ambiguous concept to expect people to make complicated decisions. That's a very complicated decision in, in a lot of circumstances. So anyway, point is, uh, you know, and I think it's also a high standard, even for a prosecution to, in a state where duty to to, duty to retreat exists, to really successfully argue that as well. Although I'm sure it's been done, I'm sure that's why it exists in certain states. But uh, yeah, Yeah. yeah, you know, Ohio has worked hard to get rid of their their statute uh, and has come close a few times, but just can't quite get over the hump.
0: Yeah, it, it is ugly because it's that whole duty to retreat if safely if safely able that becomes so ambiguous. Well, you mm-hmm. know, well, did, do I, did did you really have time to safely retreat? You know, maybe I thought I didn't, but the the prosecutor thinks I did have time, or you know, maybe the prosecutor thinks that me climbing through a window is uh, is safe, and I think it's not. Uh, you know, or whatever thing. So it's right. It, it, that's how it can it can kind of become complex, and and this concept mm-hmm. of if safely able i also you know nowhere where there is a duty to retreat is there a requirement to abandon people so this idea of well i thought i was safely able to go through that window but i didn't think my 12-year-old was able or i didn't think right. that my uh, mother-in-law who was with me was able. so that's that's you can see how it gets really com- you know complicated and ambiguous really fast mm-hmm. yeah
1: and i'll tell you the the media has for lack of a ba- better word bastardized the term uh, stand your ground and has blown it into something that it really is not, uh, and given it a negative connotation for a lot of Americans, which is which is a travesty. Uh, because I think if you talk, sat down, and had reasonable conversations with people and explained self defense concepts, including like what we're doing here today, they would go, "Oh yeah, I can see that's that's kind of tough. That's tricky. That's problematic. Like, yeah, uh, maybe we should get rid of duty to retreat statutes."
0: Mm, absolutely. All right, so we're going to recap, and then we're going to cover three common questions. The three, I think, most common questions people still have about, can I shoot, uh, even after understanding these five elements. So here are our, our, our five elements, once again. Innocence, proportionality, imminence, reasonableness, and, depending on the state, avoidance. Okay, those are our five. Now, here are the three most common questions that uh, I think come up. Uh, especially someone who's new to these concepts, and we'll, we're going to go through these one by one. So the first one, Riley, uh, who can I defend? You know, is it only myself, only blood relatives? You know, like you know the, this this whole concept of self defense is it limited in any case to you know only certain people?
1: Uh, generally, no. I'm not aware of any circumstances where where it is. So uh, all the states I'm familiar with, and I think this is universally true, Jacob will confirm that pretty much statutes are written in such a way that you may reasonably, uh, justifiably defend yourself or others.
0: Yep. I'm not aware of a single statute anywhere, uh, nor, and I've been saying this for a long time and no one's ever attempted to prove me wrong. So I have no reason to believe that there's any limitations whatsoever anywhere in this country relative to who you can defend. Now. With that said, there's there's certainly some moral and perhaps strategic questions there, right? About defending uh, someone in a situation where you don't know all the facts, you don't know all the circumstances, and you know, that's probably a private conversation for another day. But I'm not aware of any legal limitations that say only these relatives, or only someone with whom you've known for X number of years, or only someone who's a blood re- you know, Nothing like that anywhere that I'm aware of. You have the same rights to defend anyone as you do to defend yourself under the same circumstances. So. Mm-hmm common question. That's the answer on that one. Okay, here's the next one, Riley. Uh what about my stuff? Can I defend my car or my pet?
1: No, with limited exceptions.
0: Yeah, really well put. With with very few uh exceptions and 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 even very significant restrictions on those exceptions. Basically, you're never justified in using deadly force to defend property, and, and animals do fall into the category of property. Now, uh, that could sound alarming, but I think a, a good moral in, internal reflection would, would bring a person to a conclusion that's probably a appropriate law to have in place. Um, I do think that the nuance that perhaps can get lost or that someone may not understand is that – uh, it, it might sometimes get confusing to a person uh, or to a prosecutor as to what was being defended. So the carjacking scenario is probably the most easy example to kind of paint this picture. But someone sticks a gun in car window, get out of car. Uh, it's pretty clear that the law does not support my right to defend – or the, yeah, that the law does not support my right to defend my car from being stolen as much as I love my Tacoma. However – uh, the law does certainly empower me to defend myself and other people who are in the car. Or maybe an argument could be even be made that uh, this person who carjacked my car is about to run over somebody or something. Right? So, so it gets really clean and simple that I can still defend myself and other humans on based on the elements we've already discussed. Um, but the car itself, as a standalone object, is not not defendable with my use of deadly force. And that's where maybe there's some confusion or a nuance.
1: Well, you know, in a common situation uh, that people may find themselves in is not that carjackings are all that common. But one that sometimes happens is where you are carjacked, but you've got your children inside the vehicle, uh, a baby in a car seat or something to that effect. And where it's in those kind of situations, it's... Very much reasonable to assume that if that person takes your car and takes your your babies along with it, uh, those babies are in absolute danger. And uh, in fact, most states have statutes regarding forcible felonies and/or kidnappings specifically mentioned in statute as being something that is permissible and justifiable to use deadly force to prevent.
0: Sure, and, it, and it would, that would kind of make sense, right, based on these elements we've reviewed. you know, yep. Is it reasonable to presume that if someone's getting kidnapped, that person's in danger of serious bodily injury or death? Now, it's pretty clear over time that most, most courts would say, yeah, for sure. Oh, Riley. Riley is sharing on the screen a comment from Ben that says, quote, That's why Jacob drives a taco if it gets stolen, no big loss. That's not cool, man. The Tacoma is a very respectable vehicle, and as it were, I think it costs more than Riley's F three fifty. You know, I I I I don't have
1: I have respect for the ta- Tacoma pickups. They're really good pickups. I just Darn, don't like right. the fact they don't make them for ogre sized individuals like myself. <laughs>
0: Buy a Tundra, dude. Jeez, move on. Okay. The third most common question that I think we get or, or that perhaps causes some confusion that, we, that seems to get people into trouble is this one. Um, Riley, in circumstances in which I may not be lawful in shooting my gun, can I just wave it or vaguely refer to it or threaten to use it? No. Yep, correct. Yeah, this, this really <laughs> yeah I,
1: I like giving the simple answers, right? Like, yeah. I'm sure there, there, there's an explanation, of course, that could be given. But, I mean, it, the the easy thing to, to do is is to have it in your mind, in your mindset, a part of your mental preparation that the gun – we only go to the gun. We only put our hand on the gun. We only touch the gun. We only pull the gun out when it's time – when it's go time, Right and go time means when we are justifiably, uh, when we are justified in using deadly force, essentially, or about to be. Right, like situations evolve very quickly. Uh, you may be in a situation you go, it's go time, and you begin pulling the gun out, and you're justified in doing so because you're going to start pulling that trigger here in about three quarters of a second. But in that three quarters of a second or a second or so, that the your adversary goes oh, snap, this guy's got a gun, and they start retreating, they start backing off, they start laying down their weapons, well, you know, we that, that situation just evolved, that situation just changed. And so that's not a situation where you just brandished needlessly. No, that's a situation where you needed the gun, but the mere presence of the gun de-escalated the situation and put an end to it. Don't get that confused with, I don't like this person yelling at me or getting in my face. I'm just going to flip up my shirt or put my hand on my gun because I'm pretty sure that'll get them to back off. Wrong attitude to have.
0: Yep. Yep. Making a threat to use a gun in circumstances in which it isn't lawful to shoot the gun is illegal. Uh, now the, the potential criminal liability is different, right? If I shoot a gun at someone in a circumstance where it wasn't legal to do so, my liability can be much much more significant. I mean, worst case scenario, like attempted you know murder, homicide, you know, et cetera, manslaughter, uh, yep. manslaughter, right? But but in a in a situation where I just make a threat with a gun in a in the same situation in which I was not legally able, I'm not looking at the same kind of charges. It's probably an aggravated assault or a felony uh, felony assault or something like that. Um, so felony it's still menacing. very significant criminal activity. I'm sorry, what was that, Riley? Uh,
1: or or like a felony menacing charge. Sure, felony menacing, yeah.
0: So it's so still very serious. It's just not the same kind of serious. But the circumstances in which it's permitted are the same. Now, one quick disclaimer just to, to prevent us from being misquoted. Um, neither Riley or I said that because – one can only threaten with a gun in the same circumstances in which one can shoot the gun. One, therefore, should always just shoot the gun. We didn't say that. Uh, There's still very appropriate situations to just use the gun to de-escalate a situation and not have to fire shots. That's A-OK where possible. What we said was that it's not legal to make threats with the gun in circumstances in which you couldn't have just shot the gun. That's what we said.
1: Well, that's why I brought up the whole point of situations evolving that that's an important thing to recognize uh now uh one last thing you know uh, talking about when can you shoot somebody or when can you pull your gun out or brandish it or whatever uh well something we see i see these youtube videos with fairly fair with fair regularity uh and that is a situation where it's like a road rage type situation. Two cars, you know, like jockeying alongside each other and yelling at each other through the windows. And the one dude goes, hey, 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 and pulls out his handgun. Uh, if that's you, get out of here, man. You know, fix yourself because that's, that's, that's just, that's just wrong.
0: Cool, <laughs> cool, 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 cool. So. I think that about brings us to the end of our conversation here. I'm going to just summarize on a couple of thoughts here again. When can you shoot someone? Well, effectively, if I had to summarize this real serious, my summary would be, you can shoot someone when all of the required four or five elements of self-defense law are true. That's it. That's the answer. That doesn't always make it the best decision. It doesn't always make it the right moral or ethical or tactical uh, best choice, but that's when it's legal. You can legally shoot someone when all of the required elements, four or five that they may be, are true, are met, when all those boxes are checked. And that's how it works. A couple of uh, final thoughts here. In the in the notes of uh, today's episode, if you go to the show notes, you're going to find a couple of links. One, the link to Andrew Branca's book, The Law of Self-Defense. It's in its third edition. It's a great read. And it really talks about a lot of these nuances, those little things that... Uh, devil in the details, so to speak. You're going to find a link to our American Gun Law course. It's a comprehensive course that both addresses self-defense law and gun law. Okay, you're going to find a link to Andrew's course. He just calls it the Law of Self Defense Level One, and it's about an eight-hour course. And he's taught he traditionally taught it uh, in person. More recently, he's been really more teaching it online, uh, but it's available in recorded video on DVD format or for online streaming. You're also going to find a fourth link. Uh, that link is to uh, the the state supplement videos that would traditionally go along with Andrew's course. So Andrew's course, kind of his core course, is an eight hour course, and then he has a state specific supplement. You know, this, the supplement for Colorado or for Alabama or for Massachusetts, whatever it might be. And I would highly encourage you to consume both, both his level one core course and his state supplement for your state or any other state where you may spend a lot of time. And then fifth, you're also going to find a link in the show notes to um, ConcealedCarry.com forward slash laws, which is kind of our online archive on our site where we uh, keep our library of gun laws by state. You can search by state. You could click on, you know, Nevada and you could pull up a summary of all the relevant gun laws in Nevada. Or you could click on uh, a a topic like duty to retreat, which is what I clicked on a moment ago when I read you off the states that do have a duty to retreat. And that's really easy to find at concealedcarry.com forward slash laws. A lot of that library of information is also available in our app. Uh, So you can go up in the Apple App Store or Google Play and search for Concealed Carry or the full name of the app is Concealed Carry Gun Tools. But we find that if you search Concealed Carry it's prior to the top two results and download that for free onto your phone and you'll also have that library there. And we appreciate uh, you taking advantage of those resources. And should you feel inclined, we appreciate you buying those products via the links in the show notes as we do make money when you do that. You know, whether that's a product that we sell or if it's an outbound link to Andrew's site or something like that, uh, we do receive compensation when you use those links. Of course, that could be a reason to not use those links. Maybe you don't want us to get compensated. I don't know. All right, <laughs> Riley, anything else to wrap it up today? Nah, man. You know,
1: people uh, keep uh, keep carrying those guns responsibly, making good decisions, and avoid trouble.
0: If you know someone who's newer to concealed Carry or you know someone who's straight up a veteran, they've been concealed carrying a long time, but they've made comments that make you wonder if they really understand the law, please share this episode with them. Uh, You can send them the the link to the video on YouTube, the video on Facebook, or of course, once this is in our podcast feed, you can send them the link to the podcast itself. Uh, You know, Help everybody get educated and hopefully uh, encourage those people to subscribe to our podcast with now 412 episodes of fantastic concealed carry and gun law information. Uh, You can subscribe anywhere that uh, a person can subscribe to podcasts, you know, from iTunes to, well, anything. If It's a thing where you can listen to podcasts. It, we're there, and you can click subscribe, and that would be a really good idea so that new episodes automatically get downloaded to your device, and you listen to them at your convenience when able. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes, because, you know, that's a thing. It helps. Makes, makes it somewhere people can find us, and it, you know, strokes our ego, which we appreciate. Unless you say mean things, in which case you know we'll put up with it but it definitely doesn't stroke our ego (laughs) All right, Riley I appreciate you being with me today I think that's the end of today remember to check out all the links in the show notes the Law Self-Defense by Andrew Branca as well as American Gun Law our online video comprehensive course thanks everyone Riley I guess I get to say it I'm the host remember to train right train often and train safe so you can fight hard fight fast and fight true take care